0: realizing that nobody's actually going to come and save any of us and if we want to get well we are the key to unlock that door because the unwell corridor that we've lived in you know this isn't serving us right so when you decide that you want to you want to get well you have to realize that you have to take Responsibility, you have to do simple things. Like one of the first and most important steps is if you can do 10 minutes of meditation every day and don't get caught into how should it be? Can I clear my mind? Do I have to be, you know, a Buddhist? It's all nonsense. You just need to slow down and breathe. And in doing that, you're now starting to unlock that door because you're, you're giving yourself something that you haven't given yourself in years, and that is the power of just slowing down. And, and in order to get well, I like to use the expression that sometimes we have to do less in order to accomplish more.
1: Welcome to True Intention. podcast where we dive deep into the art of healing, the journey of transformation and the secrets to building a life that's truly beautiful. I'm your host, Tina Brown, and I believe that within each of us lies the power to heal, transform and create a life filled with purpose and beauty. In every episode, we'll explore the stories of incredible individuals who have overcome adversity, found their true intentions, and crafted a life that's nothing short of inspiring. Whether you're seeking guidance on personal growth, self discovery, or simply looking for a dose of inspiration, True Intention is here to light your path. Our guests will share their intimate journeys. Powerful insights and practical tips to help you embark on your own transformative adventure. So join us each week as we uncover the wisdom, courage, and resilience needed to turn life's challenges into opportunities for growth. Let's embark on this journey together because when we set our true intentions, the possibilities are limitless. This is True Intention. Let the transformation begin. Hello, it's Tina and you are very welcome back to True Intention. From CEO in investment banking to living with samurai monks in Japan, today's guest, Justin Caffrey, has been on an incredible journey. Following on from the death of his son and spending many years avoiding the grief of his loss, he arrived to a point where he had to face where he had found himself in life. Starting in therapy led him on to a path of discovering much more than he ever could have imagined. He studied for a master's in mindfulness-based interventions, then going on to do health and wellness coaching at the Mayo Clinic. He then found himself learning breathing techniques for the nervous system at the Buteco Clinic International, leading him to working on neuroscience for the nervous system in King's College. What started as an internal journey to healing has led to becoming an expert in the nervous system and impacting countless clients who work with Justin in the field of high-performance coaching. He saw the impact available to all of us and now coaches across the world in performance for athletes, business leaders, and anyone else who wants to make profound changes in their lives. I'm so excited to share this insightful conversation with one of the most incredible humans I have ever met. Let's dive in. I hope you enjoy. Justin, you're very, very welcome to True Intention, and I am so grateful that you're here. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Tina. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here.
1: So there is loads that I want to get into. I, I really want to talk about the vagus nerve and um, so many other things that you speak about. But I would like maybe to for you to go back and kind of just tell us a little bit about you and how you came to be, um, I suppose, in the coaching sphere, um, in leadership, um, working with the body, the vagus nerve, and all that kind of stuff. But you didn't jump out of the womb and decide that was your path. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got here.
0: Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, I think uh, you know, from a from a coaching side, and 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 working. Um, in this in this industry, um, I've probably been doing this now since since 2017. So um, you know seven years and prior to that I worked in, in financial services. Um, I was an entrepreneur in, in financial services, predominantly focused on investment markets. Um, and um, I came into that world from leaving Ireland at 19. I grew up in Santry, Northside Dublin, um, and got an opportunity at, at nineteen to go and work for a bank in London. I'd been studying computer science and I kind of realized that I didn't I didn't have a natural inclination to want to be in academia for too long. I wanted to kind of get out into the world. So I went to London, um, worked in banking there, had a really successful year, um, few years um working in that industry and By the time I was 23 or 24, I left banking and went into business with a couple of pals of mine, and we built our own um, financial services boutique firm in the UK. And then over the next few years, we built that significantly. So we ended up with um, a couple of hundred staff. um, We had offices in a few different countries, um, and it became a, a, a a significant part of my life. Um, so most of my 20s were predominantly focused on work, predominantly then focused on building a business. And then when I was 30, I met my wife, who who is still very kindly with me. Um, and uh, we set out then to have a family. And it also gave me a bit more perspective on life because I was probably, well, I, I wouldn't say probably, I was absolutely uh, a workaholic completely focused, um, on working on building my business. Um, and that gave me a shift and a bit of a perspective change. We had our first child, uh, in 2007, when I was, uh, 32 and we, um, decided then that we wanted to expand. We wanted to have more kids. So I'd left, I would sold my shares in my business, um, just after Luca was born. And then I had gone into some private equity work and worked with a, um, a consultancy firm in the UK, and we were working towards having our second child. And then Beatrice um, had about, I think, three miscarriages along that journey, which was pretty intense for for us, but but in particular for for Beatrice, my wife. And um, we then sat down and said, "Okay, look, this isn't working." We think we should stop. Little we know, we made that decision that she was pregnant again. So, um, this time the pregnancy went past to kind of 12 weeks, 13 weeks, and it continued on. We decided to go to Spain for uh, a last vacation before the second child arrived. Beatrice was 25 weeks pregnant. We went down to Spain. She went into labor when we were on holiday. Mm-hmm. And we never made it out of Spain for a year because our second wow. child, Joshua, was born in Spain at um 25 weeks, which is incredibly um premature. He was, I think, 850 grams, um, absolutely teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And in neonatal intensive care um for months. So we our life was put on hold. I was involved in a couple of projects at the time, and luckily I had some. Um, support from some great business partners and we lived in Spain for a year um, with the intention of hopefully getting Joshua well enough and strong enough to fly him back to our home in the UK but sadly that didn't work out and he I think it was the fourth time Joshua had to go back on life support and it was Christmas um, of 2010 and the, the physicians came and spoke to us and said, you know, look, four time on life support in the first year. We don't really think it's going to be fair to continue it on. And we kind of knew that ourselves because it's very intense and hard for a baby to go through that. But obviously you desperately want to have your, your child to survive. Of course. Um, and uh, so the decision was made the next time it happened, we would, we would let him die and, and hopefully die with us. Which we were able to allow happen. So he spent a few more weeks with us living in our house in Spain, and then he died just before his first birthday. Um, Which sounds challenging and difficult, and and it was then. But now, in in retrospect, looking back, you know, there's a lot of appreciation for that whole experience because he was told that we're told at the time he might only live for 24 hours. So. 11 months you take with huge gratitude and we got to be a family of four for, for quite some time during that. Um, and, um, ultimately I think it did change our lives. So, it brought a lot of closeness for us in that year. And then when we, when we came back from Spain and after Joshua's funeral, I was building another business which went on for a, another two or three years. And I didn't really grieve properly during that process. And then I had a panic attack in a meeting, no idea what panic attacks were. And it was when I started to do the research as to what the hell is a panic attack and why was it happening to me, I started to realize maybe I haven't grieved properly, maybe I haven't come to terms with that. So I went on a path um, to manage my grief, to go into therapy, to, to get the right support And during that process, I thought, actually, this is a path I really enjoy. I really like this um, side of life. I was a CEO of an investment company. I was flying all over the world at the time. I was flying 180 times a year. And I just thought, I want some of what I had when we were in Spain, the closeness of our Mm -hmm. family. I want that back. My my son, Luca, um, was, I think, eight at this stage. And I thought, I've got an opportunity to be around now until he's 18 and he finished his school, so I'm gonna take that. So I sold out of my businesses um, and set up my, my coaching business, focused on all my experience in, in leadership. Um, but then I went and studied, um, took a master's in mindfulness-based interventions, went to the Mayo Clinic and trained in um, uh, health and wellness coaching. And then went and trained in the Pateko International Clinic focused on um, breathing and how that impacts our nervous system. And then worked in King's College on neuroscience and how that impacts our nervous system because I kind of wanted to unpack what happened to me. But then I started to notice it's really impactful for performance, for athletes, for business leaders, for everybody else. And combined that with all my business skills. And here's my coaching business.
1: Wow that is um I'm very sorry for the loss of your son um but you seem to have been able to take that um, and turn turn that suffering I suppose into into being able to serve so many others and I think that's often it's a it's a story that we hear a lot I actually interviewed someone else in the last few days who suffered the loss of their child and what uh, the community that they've been able to build and what they have been able to i suppose cha- channel channel that into is is nothing short of amazing so it's very noble what you what you what you've done with your grief and with your with with your suffering just wonder as a family what you know what is that like as a family to go through that you know what what comes up and can it break you know because often it obviously it brought you all closer together but the, it can tear families apart as well.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember in in the um neonatal intensive care unit where we were in Malaga for, you know, Joshua was in neonatal intensive care for for nearly seven months. Um we saw a lot of relationships break down. We saw couples um breaking up. Um we didn't get a huge insight to it because it was 2010. We didn't speak Spanish, although we had to learn pretty quickly. Um so we didn't get the same level of integration, but actually funnily enough, I was talking to um, a couple of neonatal intensive care nurses from Crumlin um, who, who are now working with a functional medicine practice in Dublin. I was talking to them the other day and we were just talking about this exact thing and they were saying how many families they would see break up and and also over the course of, you know, um, managing and taking care of of a, a child with, with high dependency needs. Um, so i think it it in, it unquestionably presents huge challenges um we had to kind of go on to maximum survival mode because we were in a foreign country didn't know anybody we were only there on holiday and then we had to live there for a year so um it was a question of us really backing each other and knowing that you know when one of us was having a bad day the other one was going to have to step up um we just got on with it and um, there was no other way to really deal with it i think as a consequence thereafter the emotional roller coaster you go through is is important um, and my wife grieved really well post uh, joshua's death i focused on work because i had this workaholic nature within me so it was where i would have tried to find my solace but you know like everything in life whatever it is that you're trying to avoid whatever difficulty you don't really want to be part of it will just constantly follow you around and keep slapping you on the back of the head until you decide to lean into it and Mm -hmm. and come to terms with it and and that's what happened to me with joshua's death you know i just had to come to terms with it i had to come to terms with the reality that he has died he's not here anymore it's not my fault it's not anybody's fault it's a culmination of lots of things that just deal you a bit of a shit sandwich from life. And you know, guess what? It keeps dealing them as well, right? You don't just get like a big one and then it's like, you know, you're off the list now in terms of stuff that might go wrong again.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely not. Um, I think <clears throat> because it's all about lessons, you know, I and for for me that's why I think we're here. It's to learn, you know, and we're here to learn lessons and uh the universe will just keep churning them out um and for me it's been about the awareness you know becoming more aware of myself and listening to my body you know seeing it as a compass and listening to what it's telling me um i too spent many years as as most of us do just kind of running away and putting things under the under the rug you know until eventually the rug the pile gets so high that you just and for me it felt like my whole life had to burn down. Like I had to, you know, I had to set the whole thing on fire for me to, to figure out, you know, who, who I am and, and, and what I want. And I suppose sometimes we can, we, you can be in that that victim mode of, you know, why me all the time. And I think that lends to a cycle of, more of the same stuff just popping up and up in your life, because that's kind of the the frequency and the vibration that you're putting out there. If you're reliving that drama every day, then that's you know, That's inevitably what you're drawing in is more of the same. In that then, so when you said it took you, you know, a few years to, to deal with it, what, and you've mentioned you had a panic attack, and was that the kind of the catalyst for the start of your of the change in your life
0: um yeah i think it was it was probably a moment where i started to pay a bit more attention um but you know in the lead up to the panic attack i had a kind of a deterioration in terms of my physical body um i had like multiple autoimmune diseases that just kind of you know appeared out of nowhere (laughs) um and you know i was otherwise healthy until joshua died and then um I, I was definitely medicating with alcohol. Um, I was medicating with work. I was medicating with running. Um, but then even even with, 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 with that side of life going on, um, my body was trying to send me signals. So I had adult asthma. I had sinusitis, rhinitis. I had um, uh, chronic fatigue um, um, eczema, IBS, leaky gut, um, kidney issues, bowel issues. So there was just, all these things were just adding up and I was still only in my, in my, um, let me think 2010, what age was I, I was, I was only kind of coming into, into my forties. So I was chronically ill, um, but. I shouldn't really have been and and then anxiety was was taking hold and i've never really suffered from anxiety or depression or anything else like that and, and, and it is you know very prevalent in my family but i'd always considered myself that i don't really seem to to have a preclusion for it but it it became more and more intense and overbearing. Um, and you know, the intensity of the anxiety and the negativity and the and the you know the the relentless noise um torment that you put yourself through was just endless. Um coming to the point where I needed to go into therapy. And and I think, you know, well I, I know to be honest, the the gateway that starts to sometimes appear was like suicide could be an option here that could get me out of this because this is just too much to bear. And luckily that was when I just started to go into therapy. Um, and that, that very much saved my, saved my bacon. Um, but it's, it's easy to understand how quickly these things can spiral, um, other people and when I look back in it and what I understand now there's obviously there's there's psychological elements there's physiological elements there's biological elements um but you know even simple things like how we hydrate our body what we eat nutritionally in terms of food um these things play into how imbalanced we are and and then when you're coming through something like grief you tend not to really take care of yourself that well so you compound the problems um so it was kind of on uh, dismantling that that bomb was um the path that i went on and, uh, and i spent several years studying and understanding and exploring it and and then that's kind of helped me better understand how to work with clients and how to optimize your mind and your body for high performance and you know i think Luckily, I had one panic attack. Um, I've never had another one again. And, um, you know, I went into therapy in 2015. And by, by the end of that year, I felt phenomenally good in terms of my neurological side. But then it took me another three plus years of work to fix all of the medical issues that were going on that everybody wanted to prescribe me tons of medication for and, you know, touch wood. I don't take any medication today um, and all of those autoimmune diseases are in the past, except I still have a bit of an issue in terms of um, replenishing my mitochondria my energy levels. And that's one of the things I mentioned to you before we started, Tina, why I'm fasting. So that's kind of the last vestitude of stuff that needs to be repaired. And it takes the longest um, people who have fatigue that takes more work than most. Um, so if anybody was living with me, they would not know that I have fatigue because I'm incredibly healthy in so many other ways. But I know at a at a cellular level, there's still some challenges going on that I'd like to eke out and, and just fix that last little bit.
1: Yeah, so you're an expert in the vagus nerve. And I've spent um, the last kind of 18 months working on that. I knew nothing about my vagus nerve before I sta- started into a program of somatic therapy, which I didn't even know what that was, but I was in such a state that I I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I, you know, I found it very difficult to look after my children. I was in a really, really bad way. And it was my sister had said to me, you know, I came across this, this therapist, and it might this might work. And at that stage, I was I just would have done anything. You know, I just couldn't I wasn't functioning. So I didn't know what it was. So I, I had a consultation. I just went, please just help me. I was at that point where I was like, I, I don't know what to do. Please just help me. But I will say I did initially start on um, a course of medication, which I would have I think I was very judgmental about medication, you know, in in the past to kind of with myself. I never would have really judged other people, but I thought, my, no, it's not something because I felt that that was maybe a weakness for me. If I, I was to start taking medication, because then I was saying out loud, maybe I had an issue or maybe whatever. Um, but I, I just want to because I too try my very best now not to not to medicate. But I I do want to kind of say here that I know the benefits and kind of maybe kickstarting something when you're at such a low level that because all the work that you will do somatically and with your vagus nerve, you you know, that takes a lot from you. So I I, for kind of three to six months I did was on a course of um, anti-anxiety medication and that which I was able to just wean off of then when I was able to regulate myself so when I went into yeah, so I went into the somatic therapy first, I hadn't a clue what she was going to be doing, what we were going, what was going to happen. I just wanted someone to help me and it did. Now, I, I was in talk therapy, traditional, I suppose, talk therapy as well, which I find extremely beneficial and which I attend all the time at a maintenance level now Um which I think I, I will just continue to do because that works for me. In conjunction, but so this is when I started the somatic program. I then very quickly started to learn about the vagus nerve and neuroscience, and I became maybe like like you. I, I I'm so fascinated. So I'm studying all that now as well myself, and I'm just. It's not somewhere I ever thought I could be, which is, I think, the crazy and beautiful thing about life is like you just don't know. And if we can give up that fear of not knowing amazing things and, you know, limitless possibilities are are there for us. But I'd love you to explain about the vagus nerve and the benefits of it, what it is in our body and how it I guess it affects every every facet of our life. But if you could just kind of explain to us about sure. it and how you work with it then as well
0: absolutely i mean i think a really relevant point absolutely is for people who are struggling anti-anxiety medication um, is helpful and it's certainly not to be ruled out at all because sometimes you need a quick intervention to get a balance the the challenge is that you don't end up being prescribed by your physician and then you're just picking up your meds for a long period of time. It's not unusual that I work with clients who have been on anti-anxiety medication for 20 years. And the efficacy of the same dosage over a long period of time is negligible. It doesn't really move the dial anymore, but you still have all of the negative um, consequences of, of medication in your body. So it's important that if you can want a medication, that you have a program, as you did, where you wean off it, and then you have, um, you're doing that in conjunction with, with a therapist, so that you're able to to get some cognitive support, but the vagus nerve is becoming um um more mainstream, and people, uh, some therapists are starting to talk about it, which is which is um, super because it is really the essence of the human being. It's it's the so it's the tenth cranial nerve, and as a nerve goes, I mean, vagus comes from from the Latin to wander because it wanders all the way through the body. So your, your organs, your respiratory system, your heart, your gut, your bowels, everything is touched by the vagus nerve. And it is a direct link to your neurological chemistry as well. And we know that simple things like your response to stress, are triggered through the vagus nerve. So it is also the switch between the idea of being in fight and flight, or being inside rest and recovery. And you know, if I give you an example with, with, with my phone, we have this, this 180 degree arc of, of the way that the, the nervous system responds. On, on the one side, we have this fight and flight response. And then in the center, you have homeostasis. And on the other side, you have rest and recovery. And what happens is if if somebody were to burst in the window here beside me or throw something at the window, I would immediately move into fight and flight. So I would be in shock and my nervous system would operate in fight and flight. And that's a very helpful system because it's designed to prepare me to either fight or run. And as a consequence, the vagus nerve is the nerve that channels all the information throughout the body. So it sends an immediate signal to the body to say, "Okay, let's put our organs on standby. Let's not work on the liver or kidney functions right now because we don't need to really process stuff. There's a there's an imminent threat beside us." It also impacts how we're processing food. So we move food throughout the body using peristaltic action. So it's the expansion and contraction of the muscles in the colon, et cetera. So it's kind of expanding, and moving the food, but that just sits and waits because again, it thinks there's an imminent threat. The vagus nerve then also instructs the endocrine system to move and start to produce adrenaline and cortisone. So your heart rate goes up, your, your blood pressure increases, and your muscles are now prepped and ready to take immediate action. And even your immune system, when you're inside the fight-and-flight system, from fight-and-flight side of the nervous system, goes onto a standby mode because, again, the body thinks, well, I don't need to fight the common cold because there's an imminent threat. And that traditionally should work so that it's here and it's in that stress state. And then if suddenly I notice, oh, actually, you know, it's only, you know, kid out in the road, it was their football that hit the wall. And I'll look at it, I'll see the football and I'll see them. Then I'll go, ah, oh, that's okay. I'll go into rest and recovery. I'll feel that relief in my body. And then my body will then return to homeostasis. So we don't ever go fight and flight homeostasis. We go fight and flight, rest and recovery whew, homeostasis. And that's how it should work at a functioning level. The challenge with human evolution is that in the 21st century, what happens is we are in fight and flight for lots of things. So it can be work, social media, our relationships, trauma. And instead of being in this homeostasis resting point, a lot of folks nowadays are resting in fight and flight. So they actually have a perpetual production of adrenaline and cortisone in the system. And what happens is over time, and we know that even when you look at when you study the vagus nerve and you, there's, there's some great work where they've looked at, at um, fMRI scans. So unlike MRI scans and fMRI, they're slicing every single line. You can see that a prolonged illness starts to show the ganglia in your vagus nerve to become depleted and like almost like a a plant that's not being properly fed and nurtured. It becomes a bit withered. So the longer you stay in this fight and flight, the less resilient your vagus nerve is to get yourself to get yourself out of that. So when I was going through my own health journey, one of the key things I wanted to focus on was how can I stimulate this to start working in because I realized that I'd beaten the hell out of it for probably six, seven, maybe eight years, God only knows. And I was constantly in this fight and flight stage. So I wanted to learn how can I encourage it to get back to homeostasis. And the big part of my study and big part of my interest was we need to learn and we need to condition ourselves to spend prolonged periods of time in this rest and recovery. And this is really hard because rest and recovery, when you're in fight and flight, you want to be busy, busy, busy. I want to do stuff. I'm a workaholic. I want to keep busy. I want to keep running. I want to keep doing everything. Don't let me sit still. Don't leave me alone with my thoughts. Don't make me stop. Don't make, Certainly don't make me breathe or slow down. But the solution for chronic fight and flight and chronic sympathetic stress, so where your nervous system is, is continuously producing this low-grade anxiety, is to bring it into this rest and recovery phase. And that's found through stimulating your vagus nerve. And in particular, a really important part is down-regulating it as much as possible. So using the right breath techniques, the right meditation techniques, cold water, um, and then also how you have to feed and nourish it and take care of it and supplement it and, and build it back up again. Because it is like a depleted plant inside you. You need to reinvigorate those ganglias so they become more receptive. And then you increase your vagal tone, which we can now measure with heart rate variability on wearable tech nowadays. But as you increase your vagal tone, what that means is a higher vagal tone or a higher HRV means that you can be impacted with something really stressful, feel horrendous about it in that moment, but through breathing and awareness, you just move away from it really quickly and you're not caught up. Whereas, you know, you probably know this yourself, Tina, and I'm sure people who've suffered with anxiety. When another thing comes, it can it can take you off track for days and weeks because if your heart rate variability is low, if your vagal tone is low and your vagus nerve is not responsive, it takes a long time to get it to shift back into a healthy response and homeostasis.
1: Yeah. And it's so true. And um, I had, similar to, to what you said, for years, issues with my gut, sinus, like chronic sinusitis, couldn't eat anything, you know. And then that, that leads into more anxiety around food, then around, and, and it kind of, it, it leads its way then into um, becoming, I suppose, having anxiety around social settings because you're, Before you go somewhere, you're like, well, I don't think I'll be able to eat. You're really in your head. And when your nervous system is dysregulated like that, you're actually because you're living from up here. You're living from the mind and you've completely kind of disassociated from your body because your body's speaking to you all the time. Right. It's it's whispering to you. You may have ended up with leaky gut or gluten sensitivity or uh, Crohn's or whatever that may be. But it didn't you didn't start with the Crohn's. You started with a whisper somewhere else. Maybe you had indigestion, really bad indigestion for a while. Then you ended up going, oh, I think I have an ulcer. And and it went out because your body's saying to you, it's kind of knocking on the door saying, listen, there's some things here that are coming up that you need to deal with. And then it's like, "Okay, you're not listening. I need it gets worse. You're still not listening. And then in the end, it's like you're not listening. Okay. Here's something really bad. And that's when I think when people end up with, you know, oh. really, really life changing kind of illnesses and things. And it's something that's really chronic in society, because you were saying, you know, where you have you have so much stress, which is leading to the cortisone, which is leading to the inflammation, of the body and inflammation, of the body is what causes illness. So and it it feels chronic at the moment. You know, what what do you think? Is there is there an answer to this? Is it more education on the vagus nerve? What do we need to be doing as a society, I suppose, to to stop this or to limit it, I guess?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a huge part of it is is personal responsibility. Right? You know, I think realizing that nobody's actually going to come and save any of us and if we want to get well, we are the key to unlock that door. Because the unwell corridor that we've lived in, you know, this isn't serving us, right? So when you decide that you want to, you want to get well, you have to realize that you have to take responsibility. You have to do simple things. Like one of the first and most important steps is if you can do 10 minutes of meditation every day and don't get caught into how should it be? Can I clear my mind? Do I have to be, you know, a Buddhist? It's all nonsense. You just need to slow down and breathe. And in doing that, you're now starting to unlock that door because you're, you're giving yourself something that you haven't given yourself in years. And that is the power of just slowing down. And And in order to get well, I like to use the expression that sometimes we have to do less in order to accomplish more. So, the pathway to getting well, people want a silver bullet, you know, what's the quick fix? Can I get an injection? If you, if you've got yourself unwell because you've been chronically stressed and living your life at full speed, and most likely for a lot of folks, then there's trauma attached to that, and there's probably childhood trauma attached to that as well. So there's a lot of unraveling to go, but therapy on its own is not going to solve it. Because first of all, therapy is an industry and you can be in therapy for the whole of your life. And in the US, it's kind of typical. People are in therapy forever. Therapy as a mechanism, as part of your process to help yourself heal is really valuable because talking through your problems is really helpful. But as you heal yourself physically, neurologically, biologically, You will start to operate where you are able to just meet difficulty, feel like that's okay, I can get over it, and come back to homeostasis. So we can self-regulate, and we have done for thousands of years, but you will need some tools to get there. But I think what's important is so much of the opportunity for the individual is to empower themselves, and that can be through... Meditation through the use of of cold water as a really good other example. Even, you know, the the idea of grounding, you know, just connecting to the earth, being outside, being in nature. You know, we're, we're so connected to our environment, but we kind of disconnect as humans. But we are nature as well. So it's huge component parts are taking care of yourself. And the first most important thing is managing your sleep. But that comes with managing some simple meditation techniques, experimenting with cold water. It's in the shower. You don't have to be by the sea. You're lucky if you are. But just bringing some natural approaches to how you manage your body. And then you can track your data. So you can see your heart rate variability. Um, and it's and it's fully available. And I've, I've been working at this for years. My average... Heart rate variability now is about 82, which would show me to have the equivalent age of about 27 years of age. So oh, I've worked wow. really, really hard to get that to a point where it's come to be really high, but it started off super low because I was completely broken when I started the process.
1: And I think that's so important for people to hear that, that no matter where you're starting from, it's. It is, it's possible to heal yourself and to actually start living a life that you want to be living. I think that's part of it, too. Would you say that people are really unhappy because they were sold a lie? Um, You know, that, OK, you go to school. You do your leaving cert and then you go to college. And now it's like, well, you don't only go to college. Now you need to go and get your postgrad and your master's. And when you do that, you get yourself a good job. And when you get yourself a good job, you'll find yourself a really lovely partner. And you're going to get married and you're going to. Uh, well, you can't. It's very hard now, but generally it was. And you're going to be able to buy a house. And when you have that, you're going to feel so fulfilled. And you'll have a couple of kids. And that's what life is all tied up there in a lovely, pretty bow. But that's not. That's not. And I think when people realize that they're like, oh, hey, hold on. I followed the path that I was told I was supposed to have. And I feel pretty damn miserable in this life that I'm living. And I don't have any fulfillment and I don't feel like there's any purpose. And I'm just getting up and I'm going, you know, so it's, it's easy to see. But so many people are walking around so miserable and then they're getting sick and we're wondering why yeah. we're chronically unhappy as a society.
0: But I also think there's an idea of, of this, this idea of needing to be happy. You know, um, I spent some time living with, with these um, samurai monks in Japan and this, and, and oh, the whole wow. process to live with them was to understand what, what if, have what if they learned and what are they still um, sharing in, in a process that they haven't changed one iota in 2000 years? And the key thing that w- struck me was the, the training, the endurance, the time with them was horrendous. It was the most physically and mentally grueling experience of my entire life. But the key principle that they were trying to teach you was life is really hard and and I think. The thing that I've I've learned from that experience and I bring into my work and I talk about with my clients is when you start to see life as a series of challenging events, peppered with moments of happiness, then you're on the right path. If you believe that life should be happy, filled with some challenging moments, you're going to be very disappointed because the monotony of just day-to-day stuff is not filled with happiness. And we're all meeting challenges Every day, you know, it's like the severity of the challenge is what meets us. So the so the belly aching laughter, the the joy, the, the the moments of connection with your kids, these beautiful moments are small in comparison to the totality of your day or your week. But we're sold this idea, or we're believing this idea, that we should be happy all the time, and that makes for miserable humans.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. Talk to me about the importance of vulnerability.
0: Well, It's everything because when you try and step away from vulnerability, you're trying to hide from the reality of who you are. So you're putting on a mask, you're trying to escape your own pain, your own suffering. And when you speak from a position of vulnerability, so when you say, I'm not really doing very well, I need some help, you immediately are the catalyst for change in your life. But in in You know, in in life in general, and one of the things I talked about with with leaders all the time is speaking from vulnerability when you're running a company, when you're working with your team, because it helps us become more relatable. We all want to know that that person that we think is super successful is actually really quite vulnerable. (laughs) I get to work with some super successful CEOs and entrepreneurs who are all feeling like they're imposters, who are all having negative self-talk, who all doubt themselves at times. And, and when people who appear to you know have it all speak about the fact that they also encounter vulnerability, it opens the door for the rest of us mere mortals to be able to realize that, ah, okay, it's not just the thoughts that I have in my head. And that opportunity and opening up to vulnerability is key because it's also important to teach our kids, to help them realize, I don't have all the answers. I'm, I'm kind of figuring out as I go. I try my best. I make mistakes. And that's what happens. And that vulnerability allows for this idea of stepping away from absolute perfectionism. It's okay to screw up. It's completely fine. Put your hand up. Ask for help. If you've made a mistake... But also when you're not feeling well, when you're not feeling nourished, when you're not feeling supported, you're not feeling loved, or your relationship is not going in the right way, speaking up is key. So it's owning that vulnerability and being comfortable with it. And it's powerful, but it's a, t- it's, it's a tool that you have to develop. It's like, it's like learning to flex a new muscle. At the start, it will be really hard. People who work with me know I'm very honest and I speak my mind. But that wouldn't have been always how I was. So I've had to learn to speak more vulnerably. I had to learn to ask for what I want. I had to learn to just lean into difficulty and not avoid the difficult problem or the difficult conversation. So being open, being vulnerable is is such a power for for people to embrace, and it's a, it's a, it's again it's another gateway into well being from a mental and physical health perspective
1: yeah and I, I think for even to say there um, I suppose as a man, because women women are always seen to be more vulnerable than, than men are and that whole you know um, alpha male kind of we need to hide all our feelings. But for you to even say that it's a powerful tool, that it's a it's a huge strength. Yeah. And it's something we need to see. And I, I you know, I've spoken to people who said, "Oh no, well, I'd never show my vulnerable side because that's not what women want, or that's not what people want to see." Because some people see vulnerability as, you know, you're going to be pitied, or you're you're kind of saying that I'm needy and that I'm not, I'm not a strong person. But it's actually it's the complete opposite. And we want we want to you want to see that in a partner or in a friend or in a, you imagine being um, in a friendship where one person is never vulnerable because you're not going to feel like you can open up then about yourself. Exactly. And also it it means
0: that you teach your kids how to be, you know, people say, well, my kids don't talk to me about what's going on. Well, have you spoken to them, but what's going on? Have you told them that you're worried about stuff? Have you told them that sometimes you don't feel great all the time? If you, if they think that you hide it all the time and you're living this perfect existence, and now they feel lesser than you because they have a, a negative thoughts in their mind. You haven't created the space to allow them to speak. And it's the same in, in leadership. You know, if, 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 you, if you work with people and they don't offer you any sense of themselves, well, how are you ever going to be able to communicate with them? I mean, like Jurgen Klopp, as a, as a, as a, a manager of Liverpool Football Club, who's been in the news a lot over the last few weeks because he's, he's leaving... It's a great example of this strength of, of, of masculinity where it's okay to speak openly, to talk about your emotions, but it also is you know 21st century management because we don't have a one-size-fits-all. When I went to work in the city of London in the 90s, it was like, shut up, get in the corner, do what you're supposed to do, and if you don't like it, get out. There was no communication. But now in the 21st century, we have to manage people at individual levels. And if you look at his success at, at Liverpool, he's relating to each player. And some people need more carrots, some people need more stick. And and the only way to get people to open up to you is if you open up to them. It doesn't work one way.
1: Speaking about their, I suppose, being a parent and you know, showing vulnerability yourself. But what do you think is the importance of healing and doing work on yourself as a parent?
0: It's everything, right? Because you know, a lot of us live in families where, where trauma is just cyclical, cyclical, cyclical. You know, my my, my parents, um, you know, were, they were born in the nineteen thirties and um into into poverty in Ireland um, they both lost their mothers at a very young age they they both were exposed to alcoholic fathers and um, horrendous kind of childhood experiences with you know TB and you know um, Ireland in, in World War II era and the consequences then, as they were parenting us, they were traumatized, and my father was really ill, and my mother had lots of challenges. So there was a really difficult kind of upbringing for for me and my siblings. And this, you know, there's no there's no genetic predisposition for anxiety or depression. There's there's nothing to show that it's there. So what we do know now is it's environmental and it's a learned experience so i learned anxious behavior because i saw my parents acting in an anxious way when difficulty came into their lives and you know my dad would have you know taken to bed for weeks and not spoken to me for for weeks and so these subconsciously start to develop and and anybody who's struggling with anxiety i've yet to meet anybody who's got chronic anxiety and i say to them or which one of your parents was really anxious when you were a kid, and they go, oh, it was my mom, it was my dad. It's rare that they go, oh, well, you know, it was a fully functioning, loving environment where everybody spoke about their emotions, and it was a fantastic upbringing. That produces really healthy human beings, but when you have anxiety, it's a learned experience. So being open with your kids is so important because what you want to try and do is break the cycle. I don't want to have my son growing up feeling anxious feeling depressed because then I'm just you know carrying forward all of the historical traumas through my family and passing them on so when we speak about how we feel when we talk about how we manage our mental health you know my son sees me meditating every day he knows I use cold water he knows i'm very aware of my mind my body he knows my work that i do But it also means then that he speaks to me. We have good conversations. He's able to talk to me about how he feels. And, you know, he's six foot five and and 16 going on 17. He's a huge um, man now, but we're still able to connect. We're still able to have a hug. There's still a closeness to us because we've maintained that connection. And that's only maintained by me being vulnerable with him It's not going to work if I just wait for him to be vulnerable with me, but I'm like, I'm just going to be so hard and just push through and I don't need to worry about anything and you can grow up like me. No, because then we all grow up and realize, actually, my parents were completely screwed up when I was a kid. Yeah. I'm just living that out.
1: And I think that a lot of the time, I mean, I was... I remember being like that and the realization that, oh, that childhood was not as happy (laughs) as I just convinced. I don't know whether you convince yourself that it is or you just because that was kind of the way that everybody's family was. So you're doing okay. You don't have a direct
0: comparison. You're 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 in that life. So you don't really know. But a lot of people, when when you look at studies around anxiety, A lot of a lot of folks really only kind of get close to it in their latter 20s, because all of a sudden they start to think about maybe having their own family, their own existence. And then they start to realize, wow, some of the stuff that was going on when I was growing up was not normal. And I'm starting to understand that. So it can take quite some time away from the family environment before people figure it out.
1: Yeah, but I in total agreement with everything that you're saying with regards to showing your your kids you want to be because my son's the same. He's, you know, he knows that I pop up if if I'm not, you know, we can discuss going, well, I'm actually feeling quite frustrated right now. So I'm going to excuse myself from this situation and I'm going to I'm going to go and I'm going to breathe, you know, he'll often be like, oh, she's she's breathing or she's meditating and that's completely, completely normal to him. Um, And we we talk about our feelings all the time. We talk about what's going on. We talk about and because my son is neurodivergent, I would be especially, you know, I would kind of really, really hone in on how he feels in his body um, because sometimes it's, you know, like all of us, sometimes it's hard to get the words of how you're feeling. So instead of trying to express it through language, you know, um, I would kind of say, OK, well, where's the feeling in your body? And, you know, what was happening before then that led you to to feel that way? Yesterday, I, I he was in a class that I was teaching yesterday. I teach drama sometimes, and he was having having a moment. And we came home and I was just saying, what, you know. We sit down, we have a chat. He's he's eight Um, I said, what's what's what happened there? Like, what's what's going on? And he's like, you know what, I actually I'm not really sure he said i you know i just felt this kind of bubble of frustration and it just kind of came out so we're like well where did you feel it well, he was like oh you know so just where in your body what were you doing before that that related to it you know what triggered it it's like, like we need to be having these just open conversations all the time um because i you know i remember being a teenager and having um I guess I think it was a fa- like, I suppose it was a falling out or whatever. A friend of mine who was we were really close. She just stopped talking to me one day and I was devastated. And I remember coming home and being so upset. Of course, you know, nobody was asking you what was wrong. So like you know. But I was trying to have this Then I'm saying, do you not understand how upset I am? And it was kind of basically told to, you know, just it it'll be fine. Get over it, you know. And at the time, you just think, okay, well, that was it was like, you know, we just shut up and get on with things. That's that's how we operate. And now it's like when I go back to unpack that moment in time and I realize how that has had such an effect in other friendships as an adult. It's like, oh, okay. And you really look at that and you think, I really don't want that for my children. I don't want that to be. And I think it's important, though, to say that even if you if you only, if you're listening to this and you're, you're thinking, you know what, I really would like to, to change the way I am with my kids, but they're big, bigger. It doesn't matter. Just start. It Absolutely. really, isn't it? It's just like, just start now because you, you have time. You have time to, for them to still see your behavior and for that to, to have an effect on their behavior. Cause the, the brain, the brain, you know, like our brain is growing and from part and the part where the the conditioning and the patterns go on until we're 25 right that part is still there so you st- you you have loads of time don't think that like you've destroyed your children because even if they see you later making these changes implementing this stuff and changing who you are completely like you can have a profound effect still on your children and your relationship with them absolutely
0: Absolutely. Uh, I worked with somebody who was in their early 70s and um, really wanted to, to work on, them, on themselves and, and to, to get the right behaviors in terms of psychological and neurologically and biologically. And they did. And then they decided they wanted to go and talk to their kids um, and the kids were all adults. But it started with going back and saying, um, I'm, I'm sorry. I may not actually have been the parent that I think I was because I was dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff in my life at that stage. Um, And I'd like to kind of press the reset button and figure out how we get a relationship as good as we can. And it's massive if you can make those steps. It's not going to be straightforward, but it doesn't matter how old your relationships are. Human beings are just like plants, you know, We just put them in the right light, we give them the right food, we give them the right water, and they recover again. So everything is recoverable. You know, even the brain is recoverable as you as you as you were alluding to there. You know, the neuroplasticity of the of the mind is is quite incredible and profound. But also how we recover our nervous system, how we recover our wellness, everything is up for change. But you have to lean in and make those difficult calls. And sometimes as an older parent, that has to be started with by saying sorry to your to your kids and. starting.
1: Sorry. Yeah. Sorry is huge. Mm. It is taking ownership for your for your stuff, for your crap, you know? Yeah, that that's like for me, that was a, a huge thing was just taking responsibility, basically radical responsibility for where I'd ended up in my life and just, you know, coming out of the, the victim mentality. Um, it has made all the difference, I think for me and moving forward in life and mending relationships and building new connections.
0: Yeah. Totally agree. Radical responsibility, radical acceptance, like just, Own it, you know. No, okay, nobody's coming to save me. So the first thing I can do is fix me physically, mentally. What can I do? And then when I've done that, how do I impact everybody else? And to be honest, you know, I work a lot with people in addiction. And I think every human being should be in a 12-step program. I mean, I I stopped drinking eight years ago. I wasn't an addict. I just didn't have a relationship with alcohol. That was one I wanted to continue on in terms of how I wanted to heal but if you look at a 12 step program this is the the bedrock of change that most people need to go through and a big part of that is going back to the people that you wronged and just saying sorry because you've taken care of yourself you know you've nourished your mind your body you've come to terms with who you are and then you want to try and now behave and operate at a different level going forward so part of that is making peace with, with other folks. Not everybody's going to even want to hear it, right? Some people will tell you to go and screw yourself and that's okay. It's about making the effort to try and change so much of what's going on. And then it helps you build yourself to this point where you, where you create this higher version of you that's, that's living a life that feels more aligned with the principles that, that you now want to embody.
1: Yeah, and it's figuring out, isn't it, what those are? What do you want? You know, what are your principles in life? What are your morals? You know, because I think so often we are so caught up in the people pleasing and wanting to just be liked. And I think that's one of the biggest things with people. You know, we just want to be liked and want to be accepted and want to be validated so much that we don't even know who we are. We don't know what we like, what we want. I think initially I went through a phase of going, what is my favorite color like what is my favorite book because I think I probably would have been or my favorite movie whatever it is somebody I probably would have went somebody said oh what's your favorite book I would thought what Mm. what would sound like I you know I'm a pretty learned person but I'm not too much of a snob I don't want to be up myself now and I want I literally I think I was living my life like that where I was always I didn't know what I actually liked. I was kind of basing what I liked off what I thought other people would think that I should like. I mean, it seems crazy. I don't look at, I don't look back and think I was crazy. I actually, I look back at the other versions of myself with, with care, you know, I think I look back and I think you did the best that you could at the time with the tools that you had. It's OK, I almost look back and, you know, just to show unconditional love for those old versions of yourself, but you didn't you didn't know any better. But now that you do, that's OK. And it's not to hold shame or guilt for those old versions. You just 100%. love those old. You have to love every part of yourself. We're not all good. Not every single part of you is good and all those things. And I think sometimes there's that perception of healing as well, that everything just becomes perfect. But it's not. And it's like you were saying you were you react, but you just before you would have reacted for three days about the guy that, you know, cut you off at the roundabout and you would have been how many people would you have told that story to that day? And how long would you have been angry for? Whereas yeah. now, when you're in alignment in life with yourself, when your your body's working, when your nervous system is regulated, you say in the moment you say, well, fuck him anyway. That's it. It's it's gone. It's like things float in and then they just they just leave. They don't stick with you. You don't carry them. It's like stories, you know, some people an illness is the story of their life. And I think sometimes maybe that is why people stay stuck, because they don't know who they are without that story. They don't believe that they're enough without having. A story or some kind of rhetoric that is their life. Um,
0: Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think, I think the, the, the idea and the understanding that we're always changing and evolving, you know, like me in 2024 is really different to me in 2019 and really different to me in 2014 and really different to me in 2009. And I think, you know, even me in 2024 is different to me in January or February, 2023. So, so even like, what was my favorite movie in 2023? What was my favorite color in 2023? It's probably different now. So we don't have to have this kind of static sense of, of, of I must align to certain things. It's more a question of if I'm just fluid, if I'm just able to move through life, knowing that it's just filled with change and discomfort and challenge, but I too, I'm just moving and I'm fluid and I'm open to change and moving. Then I won't be then, you know, impacting a hard surface that I find really difficult to move away from. So the more fluid we are in ourselves and the more we realize that I don't need to be specifically focused on, I have to vote for this party, I have to, you know, eat this type of food, I have to, you know, do this type of exercise. What, what feels good, you know, what, what feels good in 2024 was maybe different to what it felt like in
1: 2023,
0: and that's cool.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's perfect to understand that it's OK to to iterate and to pivot constantly um, and move away from that idea that we must we can only be one thing, even career wise or, what, you know, whatever it is, because I think we. That's what we were conditioned with, you know, you choose a career and then you just stick with that until you shuffle off this mortal coil, <laughs> but it's not like that it shouldn't have to be like that, and I think I love that with like I have a 16 year old daughter as well and I think like that that generation of them actually they can do whatever they want and they're creating careers they're creating roles for themselves and I think that is just so wonderful and incredible and I encourage it highly um and I think we should we should all be doing that if you're interested in something this year and next year, and then you move on to something else. Well, you're not flighty, you're creative and you're just living your purpose as you go along. Yeah. Like, let's just put it, put all that crap down about putting all our self-worth on one thing or two things. It's like, well, what feels good? You're so right. It's like, well, what feels good to you in this moment? That's a pretty good place to be, pretty good place to start to shift and to move. Oh 100%. Yeah. Well, I think I've taken up so much of your time. There's still so much more that I um we could have chatted about. Um you'll just you'll just have to come back. That's it. Sorry.
0: More than happy to. More than happy. <laughs> it's been it's been a lovely conversation Tina. Thanks very much.
1: Oh, thank you. And where can people find you and connect with you and learn more about everything that you do?
0: sure um so i put loads of free content on youtube um so if you search justin caffrey on youtube um you'll find loads of stuff about the vagus nerve um tools that you can use um meditations that you can follow particularly focused on on nasal breathing and why that's really beneficial for your for your nervous system um you can also find me on my website justincaffrey.com or on um instagram and linkedin but for free content, YouTube is there. There's the, the content's being watched probably a couple of million times now. And there's so much stuff there that if you use and bring into your life, you can make changes
1: and it's completely free. Well, thank you so much for being here, Justin. I have just, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I can't wait to continue it.
0: Thanks, Tina. My pleasure.
1: Well, that was such a gorgeous conversation and so many nuggets of wisdom to take away. Here are some of the main insights from today's episode with Justin. So much of the opportunity for you is to empower yourself. And that can be through meditation, through the use of cold water, even the idea of grounding, connecting to the earth, being outside in nature. We're so connected to our environment, but we disconnect as humans. But remember... We are nature as well. When you speak from a position of vulnerability, when you say, I'm not doing very well, I need some help, you immediately are the catalyst for change in your life. Take on radical responsibility and radical acceptance. The first thing to do is to mentally and physically fix yourself. And when you've done that, then you can think about how you can impact everybody else. You can connect with Justin on Instagram at justin.caffrey through his website JustinCaffrey.com, and you will find all of his videos on YouTube where he shares so many resources and tools to help you on your journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with someone, message them, email them or text them the link. Please share it on your social media and tag us at True Intention Podcast and Justin at justin.caffery. I'm sure he would love to see it. Follow, subscribe and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you use to listen because it really does help us so much. Reviews allow others to find the podcast too. I want to thank you so much for listening. It means the absolute world to me and I will talk to you very soon.